1: Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of The Flowline. Matt and I are here with big smiles and lots to talk about, Matt, aren't we?
0: Yes.
1: Yes, we are. (laughs) Well, I mean, again, mid-summer, anything new and exciting on the Astros front? I feel like we haven't talked about the Astros lately.
0: (sighs) Dusty Baker's a train wreck. People can't stop getting hurt. Trade deadline's coming up, so Mm. a lot of people are wondering if they're going to make some moves. You know, all that kind of stuff. I really hope they don't trade Chaz McCormick. Like... I think one, he's a very good player, and just because Dusty Baker hates him for some reason, like mm. that's not a good enough reason compared, but like why is this Dusty Baker hate him? Nobody knows. Although, you know, he had the that awesome catch in the World Series, like he held his own and he wasn't even opening day starter, which I thought was just sort of like a slap in the face after his contribution to last year's performance. Right. So hmm. I don't know. So Chandler Rome, who kind of covers the Astros for the athletic, he was on a podcast and he's like He's like, it's weird. He's like, it's no secret. And as much like during spring training, somebody said something, they were asking about the bullpen or something. And all of a sudden, Dusty Baker like jumped in and was like, I don't know why you think Chaz McCormick would be the opening day starting center fielder. Like, and they're like, we didn't ask you that question. Like, and he was like angry about it. So anyways. Very defensive for no I think reason. Great story, right? A guy out of nowhere, like just... Comes up, he was drafted in a round of Major League Baseball that doesn't even exist anymore. It was like 26 round or something. Mm. You know, worked his way up, does a good job, puts his whole body into catching the ball and, yeah. you know, doing what he needs to do. Seems to be a fun guy. And just Chaz Chomp, which I mean, he didn't develop it, but it is certainly all about him. Okay. And uh, my son really likes to do the Chaz Chomp. So. You just, you know, like an alligator arm, Chaz,
1: Chaz, Chaz. Really?
0: There's two guys who have like alligator suits, and no I think they're way. the ones that started it. So they do it in the ballpark. <laughs> I, I, like I've bumped into them in the stadium occasionally. And That's so awesome. Man. Anyways, it's just
1: a fun thing. and so Chaz jump. Yeah. Huh. It's funny how fans can influence trends for players. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like a player will be like, every time I play at home lately, I've seen these weirdos which I actually love them doing <laughs> right. this thing for me.
0: That's the thing is like, he wasn't involved in it. so like, I think they met him not that long ago uh, and they great. were
1: like, he was like, thanks, <laughs> you know, which is, it like adds to the brand and he yeah. doesn't have to do anything for it.
0: No. And I mean, like it was cool, you know, during the playoffs last year when he hit a home run, like all the players in the dugout were doing it and everything. So no way. yeah, like super cool.
1: That is neat.
0: Huh? So I'm just happy for the guy. Like he, I love those success stories. No knock on anybody else, but, like, I'd like him to stick around. I'd like to see him do well. Yeah. How many years has he been with the Astros? Just a couple. I mean, he's a system guy, so he's been with the Astros for a longer time. But, like, as far as major leagues, he started after the Miles Straw trade, I guess. That's sort of when he became in the mix now, because that was Siri. It's been fairly recent, like, last year-ish. So he still
1: has some runway ahead of him? Oh, yeah. 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 Cool. And so, real quick, where do they stand? Are they anywhere near the top? Four games back on the Rangers right now. I mean, I think still
0: a wild card team. I mean, they could win a bunch of games and work their way back, too, but they need to start winning.
1: Four games back with a lot of injuries and doesn't sound like they're playing a lot. Seems like they're hanging in. Yeah, to some degree. Winning fixes everything. (laughs) True so. True that. Well, uh, on to the mud side of things, Matt. This was something that you'd brought up and a big shout out to you and the team. You guys recently did a mud school for one of the customers here in the Houston office, which I heard was an outstanding job. Everyone was happy, high fives. For those who are listening, Who, when we say a customer mud school, can you just give kind of the elevator pitch? Because I think it's important for folks to know, like, Yes, we do mud schools for obviously internal folks to learn and educate, to be able to go deliver out at the rig. But it's also important for our customers to get a better understanding of what we do and how we do things. So what is a typical agenda for a customer mud school? And we'll talk about what we're actually supposed to talk about, folks. But it just popped into my head, and I thought it'd be cool to talk about real oh, quick. Yeah. So, uh, you know, our customer schools, we'll do
0: we, – We one, we first ask, hey, what do you guys want? And normally, you know, the menu options are sometimes just like, hey, we just want four hours on oil-based mud. But a lot of the, hey, you know, we we could really use a refresher. We'll go about two and a half days, but about half that time spent in the lab. So we're going to talk concepts, and it's going to be from all the nuts and bolts basics of like, you know, drilling fluid circulating system, hydraulics, you know, the fundamentals of oil versus water-based mud, troubleshooting and treatment, solids control, lost circulation, some other sort of troubleshooting issues. So that's kind of the arc of it, but it's like, okay, we're talking about hydraulics, all right, now go in the lab and you're going to measure this stuff on a viscometer and we're going to fit it to the Herschel-Bulkley model and you can see why that seems to be the one we like. And Uh just kind of try and bring it all home as we go. And we know our customer's time is valuable as we like to think ours is. So we try and bring in enough that I try to explain like the goal, you know, even to learn how to run mud on a rig is like a six or seven week mud school. Yeah. We get a few days with you and there's meals and other things that life happens in between. So what we want to do is be able to create a path to ask better, more specific questions.
1: Uh, yeah. So
0: we kind of walk them through a mud report and Hey, you know, I know maybe you only look at cost and low gravity solids, but here's some other things, <laughs> you know, and <laughs> yeah, right. there's a lot of boxes on there. They all have meaning. It's kind of interesting. Some of them are very much like you just sort of do a lot of the presentation and talking, but a lot of them too, it's like, Hey, we'll get sidetracked and really dig deep on something that is specific to that company or people are are wrestling with. So that's sort of the overview is we try and cover all things mud in a relatively short
1: period of time. Yeah.
0: I mean, the feedback forms seem okay, so I guess it's working.
1: I feel like we've got them scheduled out forever and ever and ever, and like every other week, it's like, oh, another customer mud school in the books. And so it's neat to be able to do that. Do you find when we do them, do people try and use that time to help solve their problems? Like, it's like, okay, here's our chance to have AES to ourselves. Like, let's go. Do you ever get like hammered with like problem solving stuff? To some degree, you know, I usually encourage to have a
0: workshop if it's a specific thing where we could do some homework, Mm. present, maybe, you know, engage a little more dialogue and then, you know, circle back. But sometimes there are the, you know, hey, by the way, now that you mentioned that, like, what about this? And we'll kind of hash it out. And it's cool because if the whole team's there, yeah somebody might have some institutional knowledge. Like, well, we actually tried this other thing and we've sort of gotten comfortable with this. And that's why I've gone down this road. That kind of color that might affect like, hey, I can tell you what I think is best technical practices. But if you found this on the rig is a better trade-off, like do that. You know, sometimes, yeah, we'll spend 20 minutes kicking around something that sort of comes up. And other times it is an opportunity just for the whole team to be like, oh, okay, yeah, you know.
1: Yeah, again, you can sometimes, if time permits, use that as a big whiteboard session too, if someone has an interesting idea and you kind of dive deep into it. And again, I've maybe been part of one, just kind of fly on the wall. But either way, I just thought it'd be cool to bring up because that's something that, again, I think is another added value that we bring is like really trying to educate in a very non-commercial way to our customers on drilling fluids and application. And like you said, like drive discussion, but also uncover things that, help drive better questions, which hopefully drive better decisions. Yes. So anyway, but with that said, there was an interesting question that was around closed loop systems. And so with that sort of conversation that you had with one of the students or the folks in the class, why not talk about open versus closed loop systems? It's something we, I think we've talked about and sort of generally speaking, but actually diving deep into the differences and why one would work better and why you choose one versus the other is probably a good idea.
0: Yeah, I think so. And and, you know, this is one where once again, kind of from a, this is probably more of a practical solution than a technical one. And because of that, I'm sure this probably would be a good opportunity for some listeners to jump in, you know, after they listen to this episode. Because I guess it's one of those, there are these points where you have to say, this is better, or this is better, or I had no choice, so we're doing this. But that's going to affect how you decide what fluid you're going to use, it's going to help you decide a lot of other things. And so it's worth just sort of kicking around a little bit of the logic behind that. Although I think there's some practical stuff we're going to miss that. I'd love to
1: hear from our avid listener base. Yeah. No, again, and and full disclosure, like before we were talking, you're like, oh, you could probably add a little color to this. And as a rig hand, and even like in Canada, when I was a rig hand, it was all closed loop. And then as a mud engineer for the few years that I was in the field, everything I did was closed loop. And so, I've never actually been on a rig as a mud engineer being open loop. So, I don't have much experience like, from the actual like, operations application settings, but like, conceptually, it totally makes sense. But let's go ahead, Matt, and first go ahead and describe what an open loop system is.
0: Well, an open loop, I mean, I'm going to flip it on its head because I think we know what a closed loop system is because it's what our most common knowledge base is going to be from, right? It's the pit system. Yeah. You're handling your fluid, your fluid goes over the shakers, through the pits goes back, you know, it all stays in a tank. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of places where you can go open loop and think about having a really giant lined pit right next to the rig. And so now you can basically discharge your fluid or take your returns. They probably go over the shaker, what have you, but now you could divert them over into that pit. And you know, look, if you're flying into anywhere in West Texas, you'll probably see some of these and a lot of them have like a big berm partway through. And what it's doing is it sort of, it means the fluid has to go all the way around that berm, you know, past it and find its way to the other side. And that's where you might pull in more fluid. Mm-hmm. So it's an open loop, but you're allowing a bunch of solids to settle out. So think about if you're just drilling with brine or clear water or whatever, settling, it gets plenty of settling time. Yeah, Hopefully you get out to flocculate, you can do some other things where you're pulling clear fluid on the other side, So you basically have these large volumes to work with and, you know, you have a large supply of clear fluid and you don't have to move as much stuff around, right? We could save you on some transportation. You might not have to deal with as much storage volume or anything like that because you've got this one giant pit. And if you can keep enough clean fluid in it, you can just keep using that and, you know, maybe even get through a few wells.
1: Right. So essentially you're using, so the mud and the cuttings all get discharged into this big pit that looks somewhat like a horseshoe and you're using gravity to help pull down the cuttings, which then settle to the bottom. And then, like you said, once it goes around the big horseshoe, once it gets to the end, then essentially you have like, in theory, a solids free or a little solids. As you can. And then you pull it back into the tanks and you pump it down whole. And so, yeah, it's a practice that is old school and only used in certain areas, but it's quite effective for one thing. And it's quite a bit less expensive and it requires less attention. Ultimately. Yeah.
0: And look, so, you know, you go back to Stokes law about like solids control, right? So there's a certain amount of time it takes a particle to settle, but with that long horseshoe trip, it's got to take, it gets that time Yeah. or you increase gravity with something like a centrifuge which is costs a fair amount of money. And we've talked about the operational, like there are some ways you sort of get to end around some things and that's your big pit is sort of your solids control yeah.
1: supplement. And in case folks are wondering, this is typically, well, it is only used typically on service or when you're drilling with a water-based fluid. This oh, is yeah. not a oil-based application,
0: correct? Yeah. And we'll get into it, like what types of fluids, but it's probably okay. not going to be an expensive fluid of any
1: kind. Gotcha. Did they then, with the cuttings that settle to the bottom of the pit, they just cover them, right? Mm-hmm. Or Yeah. They don't like yeah. scoop them out. No. Yeah. I can't okay. see why you would. I didn't. Right. Look, when we talk about where
0: you can't use it the first thing is like new mexico just won't even allow it mm-hmm. so depending on your disposal requirements you're not going to do this if you got to dig that pit out and haul all this stuff off you're probably not going to do open loop you're probably going to process the fluids through solids control equipment capture your waste send it wherever it needs to go but once again you're probably
1: using a cheap relatively benign fluid where in some areas say so yeah just bury it right so and you can add like you say and i just want to bring it back real quick is you can add polymers or different chemicals to that big horseshoe open pit to help with essentially coagulating all the solids to like make them drop out faster with the idea of having even a cleaner fluid at the, I guess, dish well, where you're pulling fluid out and putting it back down hole, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like you would in like a flock system or something. Yeah. And I mean, like sometimes I've seen these
0: things where it's just like a poor boy, You're basically like stabbing a bucket with a screwdriver and just like bleeding it in or Mm -hmm. you may imagine a giant open pit, as you mentioned, old school. A lot of these things are pretty basic old school techniques, but yeah, you can certainly do that. And those polymers
1: are pretty benign and that you just don't want to overtreat. Right. Makes sense. So when it comes to knowing when and when not to use it, this is not driven by the mud company. We may be able to provide a recommendation, but ultimately it's the operator who decides But Matt, why don't you talk about when or when we wouldn't want to use open loop? I mean, legal
0: requirements first, right? So anywhere where you're not allowed to do it, you're not going to do it. So New Mexico, I'm pretty sure just has gone all closed loop. There's other places where I doubt it. You know, I doubt you could do it in the Northeast. I doubt you're doing this in Colorado. They're probably all closed loop places. Texas, generally pretty open to it. There's a couple of other places where you can do it. But even if you're allowed to do it, do you have the space? Because guess what a giant pit requires? <laughs> giant amounts of space. So West Texas, there's lots of land, but think about trying to do this in Pennsylvania with in a real hilly area or something. You might not have the backyard space to do something like this. Your footprint obviously matters. And then kind of going back to what fluids... We're probably not going to do this with anything expensive. We're going to do this with things we can sort of dump and stand to lose. The cost per barrel is relatively low, you know, fresh water, brine kind of stuff. But, you know, if you're trying to keep lubricant in the circulating – if you're trying to maintain 3% by volume, you have a huge circulating volume now. Yeah. So this is probably not economical and doesn't make any sense. You know, if you were mudded up, you're probably not going to do this. There are ways where you could arguably, like, you could dewater – I've been on rigs where we had, you know, it was effectively our reserve pit was an open pit and we would basically like sometimes dump into it and pull from it for base fluid because it had chemicals in it. We could still use after dewatering, stuff like that, not entirely common. And then, you know, one area where I would say that we do see this being sort of worthwhile a lot is if you need a lot of volume and you need a lot of volume because maybe you're on losses, so you're losing fluid at a fairly normal clip. You have a place you can pull from large volumes, you know, with partial returns and that sort of thing. Maybe even if you're applying the lubricant at this point, you're just gonna drill with losses and just pump a few sweeps as you go. That can be a fairly reasonable situation, but it's mostly gonna be cheap clear fluids in large volumes and, you know, that I'm trying to keep relatively clear. And jumping ahead on that, one of the reasons that it's even worth having this big open pit, think about a multi well pad right? Where I was going to use the same fluid over and over again. Yep. Let's say I'm drilling some cheap Avalons or whatever. I could just drill them with water or bone springs or something. So now I can drill five wells, take advantage of this giant reserve volume, yep. do them all with that fluid. And I mean, open loop, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself because I keep thinking production section, but you mentioned drilling on surface, right? Or where you're getting a ton of stuff back. And you basically just dump this into the reserve pit. And guess what? The liquid that sort of makes its way back, you can reuse that. Mm -hmm. You know, you would never try and put all that stuff through solids control equipment because it's just gumbo and junk, right? Yeah. So it can be a fairly efficient way to reuse fluid from that perspective. But I will say with the multi-well pad, some of our experience has been, if it's got a lot of wells and you keep moving the rig, like further and further away from where you're going to, dump and where you're going to draw suction, you can have these very, very long line lengths you need, depending on if it's like just a trough or if it's, you know, whatever it is where you might actually have to have some like jetting hoses or like it could pack off and then you can have a muddy section somewhere on location, Right, you know, solids aren't going to move the way you hope they do. And so I think that is one of the frustrating things I've heard from a few of our guys more recently is we drill on this really large pad and I'm like 500 feet. You know, I've got this really long length where I've got to transfer all this fluid and keep up with how I'm losing and all that. And it requires more pumps and other gizmos where they're like, man, I just love to be closed looped where we could just,
1: you know, <laughs> yeah, see what goes in, see what comes out. Right. I mean, again, it serves a purpose. Again, sometimes some of the old school ways, although we've evolved <laughs> in drilling technology, sometimes... Things still apply. And this is one of them. And you know, with regards to that, I think eventually we'll be closed loop on just about everything. Texas being the last place I think in the US that we go closed loop. I don't think in the Bakken they do. I don't think they do in the Bakken. I like this thing is
0: I could imagine a couple of places like Louisiana, I'm sure they probably still allow it. There's a couple of other places I could imagine it. Yeah. You know, the other thing is just from a like big miss I should have mentioned earlier, if you're trying to keep track of your volumes really closely, open loop's not great. So anywhere where you're drilling like a critical well, where you need to, there's a risk of anything happening, it might not be your best bet. It's not saying like you can't keep an eye on whether the well static or not, but if you're dumping everything over into a big pit and pulling it back at different rates and that sort of thing, you know, to the minute strapping is not in your favor.
1: (laughs) Right. No, that's a great point. And uh, again, like we mentioned earlier in the episode, if any of the folks out there listening have a bunch of experience and maybe a story to tell about an open loop system. And again, clearly you can tell, like I said, earlier, I don't really have much experience with it aside from, you know, managing accounts that have it. But again, it's not like something we look at closely and we're like constantly, it's just kind of like, yeah, it's there. It's kind of like a shaker. It's there. We use it and on we go. But yeah, if you have any stories or thoughts or, Anything kind of interesting to discuss, or even if you have any further questions that we can dive into, you know, again, I think the field folks will definitely could add quite a bit more color to this. But yeah, I encourage you to engage and reach out and kind of help drive the discussion. Matt, what do you got? Anything else? I guess I do scratch my head and wonder, there's probably some other big things that we
0: missed or, or could have included, and we'll follow up if we get some good feedback, because I don't know, I'm even thinking to myself like, well, you almost completely forgot to mention well control, so I'm glad I worked that in at the end, but <laughs> if it's that big of a miss, it's just maybe too late in the afternoon, or we really need a lot more feedback, we're missing some other big things, so yeah. I'd love to hear from you guys and where you think this is headed, and to your point, Justin, I think this is ultimately going to go away, I think just from a land use perspective, and even just, I think there are efficiencies here, but I think there's also going to be more expectations on knowing more about your water usage and some of these other things. It's just a more difficult to track. I could easily imagine that we kind of move past this most places.
1: Yeah. No, I think from, like you said, from a fluids management side of things, it's definitely not buttoned up to where you can track barrel in, barrel out, and, and have a really good sort of set of volume accounting. But you know, with that said, the question might be like, Well, if you have this open loop and what well, something happens and what do you do if you have to mud up? Well, it's as easy as swapping a valve and closing the loop. And right. so you can literally just go back to circulating your pits and going over the shakers, just like you would 95% of the time. And so it's yeah. actually the transition going back and forth is very easy. So in case someone was like how do you switch back and forth? It's not a huge task. You literally switch a few valves at most, and then
0: away you go. So. Very good point. I mean, that's thing is, like when we've been on losses, sometimes it's like, all right, go open loop. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, it's not like this elaborate rig up where you can't back down or you can't make changes. That's why it's still allowed, I'm sure. Yeah. But yeah, so we probably talked about some of the more important details at the very end of this episode. So I hope you're still <laughs> with us. Right. But throw in some more now that we've realized some of the things we
1: should have brought up at the beginning. No, but hey, that's okay. Again, folks listening out there, please engage. Matt and I are on LinkedIn, or you can reach us on email at the Flowline Podcast at aesfluids.com. Be sure to subscribe. Leave a review if you could. They're always great, whether they're good, bad, or indifferent. Just good feedback always helps kind of guide us in direction. Again, we've got a YouTube channel, lots of good content on there. Again, just to continue to educate. If you have any questions or thoughts or ideas for an episode, please reach out. Hit us up, let us know. Those are oftentimes the best episodes. With that said, everyone, take care for now and we'll catch you next time. Take care.
0: Thanks for listening. Please tune in next week for another exciting episode of The Flow Line. And remember, may your returns always be full and your trips always smooth. Views expressed in this program belong to participants and not their employees. The program is for informational purposes only and cannot take the place of seeking professional advice. Copyright AES Drilling Fluids.